T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Tell you, it's been a lot of work, at least for me as a professional talk show host, fill-in guest. I'm Ryan Recker. Thanks for hanging out with us on WBEN. So this is show number two for me for the day. So this is our number five of doing a talk show on the day. And it, no, is this number six? This is our number six of me doing a talk show for the day. And I got to thank you for all the text messages. That really helps. And if you ever want to call in or interact, we'll take your calls later in the hour. I have a friend of mine who's a political historian. He's the author of The Great American Political Trivia Challenge. His name is Rich Rubino, and he joins us here. Welcome to Buffalo, Rich. Thank you so much, Ryan. So today and just a couple of hours ago, President Biden signed that rail agreement into law. That means that it should hopefully avoid that strike, which is what's supposed to happen when a government steps in. Between the rail and the airline industry, the government at least Congress, they have the power to step in because they look at those as essential for Americans to be able to pretty much do everything, travel across the United States. So I wanted to talk to you about the history of sometimes threatens of strike, sometimes where labor disputes become public and the government has to step in, including the last time President Biden had to deal with it when he voted on the opposite side in 1992. So can we look back at 92, how that played out? And then some other times presidents have had to get in onto labor strikes. Yeah, that was interesting. So at that point, he was one of just six members of the entire United States Senate that voted basically against the agreement. Um, this was President George H.W. Bush um, with the essentially with the um, with the labor unions. But with it, he sided with the labor unions. He'd always been seen as kind of labor Joe. That was his basically imprimatur when he was in the United States Senate. A few things he was known for. He was known for being on the Judiciary Committee and certainly, the, for example, the Clarence Thomas hearings. He's known for writing the Crime Bill, the Violence Against Women Act, and he's known for being chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. But he was always somebody who was an advocate for unions on basically everything except for trade as somebody who actually voted for NAFTA and upset the unions in 1993. But other than that, he was basically an advocate for the unions. But he said when he signed the agreement, he actually mentioned, he said, I'm different now because I have to look out for the entire American population as opposed to being a lone senator from Delaware. He's actually known also as Amtrak, Joe, because he was literally – Take the um, he would literally take Amtrak from his home in Delaware, and he would go to Washington D.C. every day uh, when the when the legislative calendar was in place. So that's basically why he's. I think that's basically his his reason for kind of transmogrifying his uh, his uh, his his position on that. Yeah, it's interesting to think that this happened before, happened in 92, then Senator Joe Biden votes against it, yeah. and one of what only you said six senators that decided senators. to do that. Yeah. So but that's not the only time we've seen presidents have to step in. Congress have to step in in different labor disputes that were out there. I mean, that's happened a lot over the course of American history. Well, I think actually the most interesting was probably the Boston police strike. 
And Calvin Coolidge was just elected governor of Massachusetts, and the the police the police union um, was basically supporting the strike in the city of Boston, which would lead to essentially anarchy. Now Coolidge eventually kind of used the, used the militia and the um, and in eventually to try to take out the strike to try to use them during that seven day period, if you will, and eventually hired new police officers. Um, about 1,500 new police officers after this. But during the time, Samuel Gompers, the labor guru, wrote him a letter asking him essentially to support the strike and Coolidge wrote back, there is no reason to support the public. To, to, there is no reason to strike against the public good anytime, anywhere. And with that, a relatively obscure governor of Massachusetts became a national player. By 1920, as a matter of fact, when Warren G. Harding garnered the Republican nomination, the establishment candidate was Urban Lenroot from Wisconsin, and the thought was he was going to get the nomination. Someone starts yelling, we want Coolidge, we want Coolidge, we want Coolidge. And eventually Calvin Coolidge became the vice presidential nominee largely because of his role in that strike. And interestingly, during that strike, Andrew Peters, the, the mayor of Boston, got into a personal rumble with Calvin Coolidge and literally punched him in the face. So you can get that now. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps people honest. If you have the threat of being punched in the face out there, then you're probably kinder to people. Uh, but in today's world, I, there's a lot of people that I wish, I'm guessing they can wish they can punch someone through the face through their computer screen. Yes, absolutely. But we uh, we do know now today in the uh, Washington culture that obviously, um, you know, there may be some disagreements. We know, generally speaking, that it's very unified. We know that AOC and um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene have a great personal relationship, I'm sure. <laughs> We've had politicians bring up the idea of beating up other politicians. Didn't Joe Biden say that he wanted to take Donald Trump behind the garage and beat him up? And like, I don't know, Trump would say things that were similar. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, actually, Harry S. Truman, uh, there was a critic who um, actually criticized his daughter because his daughter, Margaret Truman, had, was involved in a piano recital. And he didn't like it. And Truman wrote him a personal letter and offered him the possibility of punching him in the face. Um, so it has happened a couple of times, and they actually asked Bill Clinton about that after William uh, after William Sapphire wrote a very critical column about Hillary Clinton, and they asked Bill Clinton about that, and Bill Clinton actually referenced that um, that statement by, uh, by by President Truman. He didn't say it directly, but he kind of referenced that he might do the same thing. Yeah, I want to offer you a punch in the face is a great poetic way. Way to say something like that. Just imagine how much more exciting the State of the Union would be if we had like the Will Smith, Chris Rock moment where a politician could go up and slap like the Speaker of the House if they get upset. Well, that would be a lot. That would be a lot more entertaining than I think the um, than I think having the heckling once in a while, like when Joe Wilson yelled "You lie to Obama," or when uh, Marjorie mm -hmm. Taylor Greene and Lori Bobart were somewhat heckling uh, Barack Obama. But interestingly, Kevin McCarthy. And I don't think he's actually going to do this, but. He spoke earlier this year, and he does not have, even though it's the first time in American history where two, where both the minority leader and the Speaker of the House from the same state, California, the largest state. But at one point, Kevin McCarthy said, and he was talking to a, to, to a group of Republicans, he said he can't wait till he takes over the speakership. He said, I'm going to take the gavel, I'm going to hit the Nancy Pelosi over the head with it. <laughs> so, Rich Rubino is... Uh... I think that was not literal, though. No, I hope not. Well, he hopes not. Richard Bino, author of the Great American Political Trivia Challenge. You can find his book online. Now, just one other thing with a president. I remember, and I forgot what country it was, but didn't George W. Bush have a shoe thrown at him? Oh, yes. Yes, that was uh, that was Iraq, and I guess that's, uh, that's kind of a, that was, I remember, the media. And I guess that's kind of a uh, protocol, but he was, um, they were very critical of George W. Bush. But if you saw, he kind of 
he basically um, he basically ducked, and the shoe did not directly hit him. I don't believe. Did pretty good there, uh, ducking. And what was and just talking about ducking? I remember one of the famous quotes from Ronald Reagan after the assassination attempt when he was shot. Oh, Wasn't yeah. the famous quote from him saying that I forgot to duck? <laughs> yeah, he said, "Honey, I forgot." He said, um, "He said, honey, I forgot to duck." And then um, later on, they asked him what it was like to be shot, and he said he didn't know he, he was shot because he didn't necessarily feel it. But the Secret Service agent, he was actually coming out of an AFL-CIO uh, speech actually when he did that. Ironically enough. And he kind of waved, and he and he was uh, and he and he was shot, and um, you know the Secret Service brought him down essentially, and they brought him to the hospital, and um, and he certainly was the first president to actually be shot, but to live out, but to live and set through an assassination attempt. Now you're going to say, well, what about Theodore Roosevelt? He was shot actually giving a speech in Wisconsin in 1912, but at the time he was a former president, and he was running as the Progressive Party's presidential nominee. There have been other presidents. Who there have been attempts to be shot at Gerald Ford being two, being one who actually had two assassination attempts and one of them was in California in Sacramento actually after just going out just leaving a meeting with the young governor of California Jerry Brown. Oh wow, I didn't remember that. You forget That's about right. things like that, I guess, but you don't. I do. Andrew Jackson, but uh, Richard Bino does not. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the change in leadership? Uh, Kevin oh, McCarthy yeah. uh, trying to be the leader of the Republican Speaker of the House. I mean, I guess that could there's a chance that doesn't happen, but it looks like he's the front runner for that. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is the name that comes out for the Democrats in succession of Nancy Pelosi, who says she's not going to uh, run for Democratic leadership again. Uh, let's talk about what happens when there's a change in leadership. Do you normally see that Republicans, Democrats, with new, fresh blood in the offices, get along better? Is there any change we can expect between the two parties after that? Um, usually the one day you see it is the day when the new Congress is inaugurated. The former, speaker, the former Speaker or the new minority leader usually will give a speech talking about essentially how they're going to work together. But it's usually very much just kind of platitude. And the next day you go back to the partisan, <laughs> to the partisan wrangling. But they try to talk about usually what will happen. I know that when Dick Gephardt, um, when Dick Gephardt presented the gavel to Newt Gingrich back in 1995, and the Republicans have been in our power for 40 years, he said he invited Newt Gingrich. He said, and "I welcome you to come to my district in Missouri." So they're kind of, you know, they had that type of a, of a uh, protocol. I know there was one time um, when John Rhodes from Arizona was presenting the gavel to Tip O'Neill, and this is every time you always have the situation where the person who's, who's the minority leader or the former speaker, in some cases, gives the gavel, and he says he said to Tip O'Neill, "You're now one of the longest." Um, you know, you're now one of the longest members, one of the longest Democratic House speakers, a record which will be broken, which will be broken by the next election cycle. And everybody kind of um, kind of laughs. It's interesting, though, what Nancy Pelosi is doing is very rare in that she's staying in the House of Representatives, meaning she will no longer have essentially the speaker's office. So she's basically going to be a rank and file member now. And she's kind of, being, I guess you could say, self-demoting. And she's going to represent San Francisco. A few speakers have done this, not San Francisco specifically, but Joe Cannon from Illinois being one of them. Another one was Joe Martin from Massachusetts. And Joe Martin eventually landed up losing his own seat to Margaret Heckler in a primary. Uh, Denny Hastert was the most recent one who stayed on as speaker after Republicans lost control of the House. He did not run for the seat of minority leader. And Nancy Pelosi actually graciously, I guess you could say, uh, from a public relations standpoint, gave him a ceremonial office. So he had the office of the of the kind of, I guess you could say, almost like Speaker Emeritus, Emeritus rather. So you wonder if um, Kevin McCarthy would give the same um, 
would do that to Nancy Pelosi and give her some sort of an office. But it was interesting to see somebody who's basically been in power and been hegemonic over the party since 2003 when she became minority leader, now being a rank-and-file member. In terms of the actual leadership, um, I, think that, but I think that generally, I think Kevin McCarthy knows, um, knows, knows the new minority leader relatively well. He has been a member of the leadership. He's been chairman of the caucus, so it's not like he kind of came out of nowhere. Now, the case is any Haster. That's interesting because he did kind of come out of nowhere. If you remember, Newt Gingrich um, ran for re-election, and then the party actually lost seats in 1998, the first time that's happened. This was Bill Clinton's administration for in the second term, in the second term of a president in the, the, in the six the six year, the six year of a president that a party's actually that the, that the opposition party has not gained seats since 1820. So then he resigned. Bob Livingston was the speaker um, designate, and he ended up resigning after a scandal. After a, basically they found out that he had cheated on his wife, and he had said he talked, he spoke in the House floor, and they were looking for anybody, and they picked Denny Hastert, who was the chief. Um, who was a deputy minority whip, but had very little name recognition. If he kind of, kind of the accidental speaker, and then landed up serving for eight years and became the longest Republican speaker, interestingly, in American history. Wow, it's talking about the the downgrade. Now, maybe that's not the right word for it, but Nancy Pelosi going from you know the head of the party and the leadership down to you know a procedural role in some ways. You know, uh, have, have there ever been presidents that after they've served, they've gone to lower offices because there's that yeah. one movie with Ray Romano and Gene Hackman where he is like, welcome to Mooseport, and he runs for this small-town mayor position. <laughs> yep. Have you ever seen people that have ran for president, got to the office as president of the United States, and then after they're out of office, they ran for something else? Yes. Well, one, a couple examples. The, the most, the most, probably the most glaring one was John Quincy Adams, who actually went back to the House of Representatives and became an advocate against slavery and actually died in the uh, speaker's office after delivering a speech. So he was probably the most, he, and he, he actually became very eloquent in terms of being an advocate specifically um, against slavery. So he was probably the most famous one. We had others, Vice President yeah. Richard But Johnson. hold on, uh, re- yeah. real quick, Rich, I, I'm sorry, I forgot that we have to do a traffic break. It'll take a moment and we can come back with some of these other instances where this has happened, if you don't mind holding on. And right before traffic, you were talking about how former... Well, I guess at the time, presidents of the United States, after they are out of office, have ran for other forms of office, which is surprising to me. Oh, yeah. Actually, one of them, and I know everybody, this is right on the top of everyone's tongue, was Richard Mentor Johnson, who was Martin Van Buren's vice president. Um, I know you're all thinking about him. Um, he, he actually <laughs> ran for, well, first of all, he sought, the, he sought his own Democratic nomination for president in 1944. Then he first started running for governor of his home state of Kentucky. Then he dropped out and endorsed another candidate. But then his last year in his life, 1850, he successfully was elected to get this, the Kentucky legislature. Oh, and he yes. in office, just like John Quincy Adams. So you go from vice president of the United States, heartbeat from the presidency, to the Kentucky legislature. And beyond that, <laughs> the other one would have been Andrew Johnson, who after being president, came back and actually was elected at the time the legislature's elected um, elected, the, elected the United States Senate. The Senate. There are senators, but he was elected to the United States Senate from Tennessee. And there's another one that's kind of interesting, and that was John Tyler. He was actually elected to the Confederate Congress in 1862 hmm. and died that year. He actually died before he could actually serve, but as a result, he was seen as a traitor, and he's the only former president who, after they died, with their, they were not recognized in Washington, D.C. There was no formal funeral because he was not viewed as an American at that time. 
Oh, wow. That's interesting. Really fun things to think about in American history is uh, you point out there's so many great bits of trivia that I've oh, never yeah. considered. Uh, you can find the book online. Amazon's a good place for that. If you look up Rich Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, the Great American Political Trivia Challenge is just chock full of trivia. And by the way, what's that number? How many bits of trivia do you have in that book? 2,175, but who is counting? <laughs> and soon to be. And it's just counting up. There's always new trivia to add. And that's what I like about these conversations. You bring up some things that, you know, are relevant today, like the labor strike with the railroads, and then find ways to compare it to things that have happened in the past and how it played out. I'm always happy to learn new things from you, Richard Bino. Thank you so much for joining us here on WBEN. Thank you much. I greatly enjoyed it in the uh, home, in one of the places where uh, Millard Fillmore lived at one point. <laughs> Is that where you categorized New York? One of the places Millard Fillmore Millard once Fillmore, lived. Millard, the land, New York State, the land of Millard Fillmore, yeah. <laughs> That's how we all know it. Not the Empire State or whatever. Uh-huh. Nope. We're Millard the Fillmore. Millard Fillmore State. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take a look at your news coming up in a few minutes. And I saw the story out of Philadelphia. The uh, people in Philadelphia are setting a curfew for kids under the age of 18. They're saying at 10 o'clock, kids got to go home. No kids out on the street after 10 o'clock. Would you support a curfew in Buffalo if it meant that these kids would be safe and out of trouble? I think a lot of people would. We'll discuss that coming up on WBEN. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Rich Rubino is a very interesting political historian. He has forgotten more about politics than I will ever know. And that may be spotting him a few points because I don't think he ever forgets about anything politics. I'm Ryan Recker filling in. You can find me online, ryanrecker.com, if you wanted to get some social media links on there. I saw Philadelphia is going to try to cut down on youth on the street at night. The old phrase that nothing good happens after midnight it's true. I even used to work after midnight, and I can tell you nothing good happens after midnight. Uh, 
Sometimes you hear those stories of teenagers that are on the streets and what are they doing at 10 o'clock in downtown, wherever, when there's a shooting or when someone gets hurt. And it really boggles my mind, too, why the parents aren't doing a better job of keeping an eye on their kids and not allowing them to run the streets so late at night. When I was younger, you wouldn't find me in a downtown area. Um, Just wouldn't happen. I grew up outside Detroit. My parents didn't even like to go into the Detroit area anytime during the day, let alone night. They would have grounded me to my room and chained me onto the floor if they found out I was going to Detroit at some point. We can look at many major metropolitan areas that are having problems right now. Buffalo, hey, you're not perfect. Philadelphia, you're not perfect. Chicago, you're not perfect. Any large major city is not perfect when it comes to trying to curb violence, particularly those either when the child, that means under the age of 18, are the ones that are the victim and injured, and sometimes they're also the ones committing the crimes. Sometimes they just get in with the wrong group. Sometimes there's nothing else for them to do. There's a whole wide variety of reasons why someone under the age of 18 would go out and start committing these crimes. Maybe they feel like it's easier for them to get away with it. You know, steal a car under the age of 18. Ah, they're not going to put you in jail for that. Might as well. And sometimes they're even coerced into doing such a thing. In Philadelphia, they said in order to try to stop not only the senseless crimes against children, but also crimes committed by children, they have implemented a curfew by a wide variety, a variety, excuse me, a wide majority, I should say, 15 to 1 on the city council voted to impose a 10 o'clock curfew for anyone under the age of 18. If you're under the age of 13, you need to be home by 930. One, I can't imagine being 13 and allow, uh, I mean, outside of the house alone after 930 at night. Are you kidding me? How is that even possible? Would you endorse a curfew for Buffalo? Would you? Just tell me. Because I think it's not the worst idea. 716-803-0930. We can take your calls. We can also take your text messages there. I'm looking at some of your text messages coming in. One person said, uh, whoever let me fill in should be fired. And another person said, I love it when Ryan fills in. Best drive home ever. So, yeah, 50-50. Either love me or hate me, I guess, according to the text message line. But I think about the times when I was out late, there was only a rare amount of times I was out after dark. And it normally had to do with my job. Sometimes you would have to work late. Sometimes you are working after 10 o'clock and you were under the age of 18. Sometimes it's the summer and it's seven, you're 17, you're 16, you got your driver's license, there's nothing else to do but you just cruise around, get a coffee from Tim Hortons or something, a cappuccino from Tim Hortons, and just goof around with your buddies. Like, go to, uh, it doesn't even matter where you go. And I was harmless. Never had an issue. Never really ran into police. Never committed, well, not, undocumented, I guess, quote unquote, never committed crimes, wink, wink. But nothing violent towards other people. We always did stupid, like, okay, let's go, you know, mess with someone's car when they're gone and we'll put saran wrap around it. You know, stuff, stupid stuff like that that teenagers would do. But we weren't going out there shooting each other. And that's the reality of 2022 and in anything, even 2020. I'm afraid that one day if I'm out late, there's just going to be a gang of people that shouldn't be getting together, and I'm going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I worked at a radio station before I started doing all these fill-in jobs. I worked at a radio station, and my primary job was the evening and nights talk show host. And I would leave sometimes the radio station at 2 a.m. in downtown St. Louis, very dangerous area. 
And I would leave the parking garage and I would think to myself, man, even though I'm in a parking garage, I have to look both ways every step of the way. I'm afraid someone's going to pop out. When I would leave the parking garage, I kept thinking to myself, what if someone pops in front of my car and tries to carjack me? What if I get shot trying to come out of here? Every single day I thought that was going to be a possibility because you read the news and you paid attention to the news and you realized these things were happening. I can't imagine allowing my kid when he turns 16 to live in that type of scared reality because in my mind, I know it's a possibility, but I don't want him to know that. So naturally as a parent, to protect him, I would say, you're not going out late. You're not working in a downtown area late. I'm not going to let you do it. And in fact, you're going to stay home and I'm going to make sure you stay home because I love you. You may not realize this now, but I really, really, really love you. And I'm not doing it because I want you to, you know, not have friends. I'm not doing it because I look at you as someone that, oh, I just want to be mean to you. No, you do that because you love them as a parent. And sometimes it has to be done through the law because some parents will allow the kid to go out and do these things anyway. Here is Philly's ABC6 reporting on it. And this will be year-round, no matter what day of the week, whether it's weekend, summertime, school time, it's year-round, permanent curfew for minors in the city of Philadelphia. The All right, so this is Councilwoman discussing it. I can't remember her name offhand. If they were to implement this in Philadelphia, would you think this is a good idea? Should they implement, uh, excuse me, should they implement a curfew in Buffalo, should they do it? You think it'll make it safer? 716-803-0930. 716-803-0930. I don't think it's a bad idea. The goal is to keep kids out of trouble and safe. For those between 17 and 14, the curfew would start at 10 p.m. each night. For 13 and below, it's home by 9.30. Tonight, we're hearing mixed reaction about it. A lot of the youth today seem to not understand that um, things aren't you know, as good as they should be out right now. So there could be some dangers out there. They're too young to understand that. But it's also, you know, they got to be able to live their lives, too. It's a little annoying. Yeah, they do have to be able to live their lives. I remember one time there was a curfew and I was driving, even when the curfew was going on. And I kept thinking, oh, man, I'm going to get pulled over and get into so much trouble. Uh, in Detroit, they have a thing called Devil's Night. I think it's only a Detroit thing. I don't think anyone else has it. But it's the night before Halloween. And historically speaking, people would go out and burn down abandoned buildings in Detroit, and they call it Devil's Night. So leading up to Halloween, areas would implement a curfew. So if they saw someone under the age of 18 out there, they just assume that you're up to no good. And because they assume that, they would stop you and make sure they would look around that you weren't doing something inappropriate. So this is what I would do. I would have to have some sort of form of ID, obviously, my driver's license. And then I would be able to say things like I was coming from work. So I was working a little bit late. In some cases, I played soccer and our team would get together and we would practice. And then after practice, you would just kind of hang out for a little bit, but it would get dark after school, just depending on you know how long you practice for. And I would be afraid I'm going to get pulled over. It was that type of fear that made me wonder, is there no fear and no shame in today's children that even if there were a curfew, would it just be ignored? Even if they knew they weren't supposed to be there, they would do it anyway. Much like you see with the shootings and much like you see with the vandalism, the carjackings, is there no shame left? Do they just do it anyway? It's such a selfish way of thinking, of course, but in the kid's mind, they think the repercussion is so low, the risk of me getting caught is so low, I might as well do it anyway. Because in today's world, I mean, how many times have you heard stories of people getting caught, not prosecuted, 
not charged, right back on the street to do the same thing again. They look at stealing a car as almost like a low barrier. They look at stealing a car as a nonviolent offense. And since no one got hurt and they're a minor, I guess we can't hold them or I guess we don't have to worry about it. And these things keep going on until finally it escalates and it gets more and more dangerous. So part of this ABC6 story from Philadelphia, they talked to actual 16-year-olds to see what they think. It's a little annoying if I happen to be out with my friends, but I get the reasoning. I think it's a good thought, but like if you're with like a group of people and like you're in like a safe space and like you're just out at night, I feel like it's like not necessary to enforce it. For those who violate the potential curfew and are caught by police, officers will try to take them home if that's not possible and guardians can't be reached. There are two options. One, the officer must take the child to a police district or to one of the city's new community evening resource centers. Wait, evening community resource center? What is that? It's not like a detention center, is it? Is it like a homeless shelter for teens that aren't homeless and they're waiting for the parents to follow through? I, I've guessing that the ones that you catch, you'll have a hard time reaching the parents. This is what I would expect, honestly, in my generation, or I'm guessing your generation as well. If you got caught doing something you were supposed to and the police were going to return you to your parents, the police officer expects that parent to slap you as soon as they see you and just yell at you. That is like almost the instant reaction I would expect. Like, I'm so disappointed in you. What's wrong with you? And the police officer would just account it as what's being normal parenting. In today's world, if a parent were to do something like that in front of a police officer, they would arrest the parent, wouldn't they? Uh, one person, I'm looking at these text messages coming in. Bottom line is, if kids are under 18 or under parent need, uh, they need to be held accountable. Another text message, your parents were absolutely correct, okay? And here comes the racist claims. Are you saying that having a curfew... Uh, if you're 18 or younger, is a racism thing. I guess I don't see that being, I guess I don't see the connection. Are you saying that only certain races go out late? I don't think that's the, the case, really. All right, but I wonder what would be solved. I, I do think this would help. I also could look at this from the other side. And let's be more pragmatic. Are there enough police officers to enforce something like this? I have done enough driving to realize in the past, I don't know, five years, that it is the wild, wild west. Anywhere you go, any freeway, it is insane the way people drive. You don't see police officers pulling over people that drive reckless anymore because there is not as many police officers doing traffic enforcement. So what is a police officer to do late at night? Are they going to look at someone and say, oh, they look like they're under 18. I better stop and talk to them. And are they going to say, well, you only stopped to talk to me because I'm black or something along those lines. You think that's going to be opening up police officers and departments to be looked at as racially profiling because they want to try to enforce this? And is there enough resources for the police to be able to do this effectively anyway? Because if we're talking about late at night, then what's happening? There's shootings, there's muggings, carjackings, fires, a million other things that are going on that police officers are responding to. Emergencies, they're probably not looking at a lone 17-year-old out on the street as an emergency they need to respond to. So you can pass it, but is it something that is going to make a difference? It's a whole different thing. Because government's great about doing things and not, uh, you know, making laws that have no actual end of the, trying to help people. Sherry texts in, my question is, where are the parents? Parents today do not take care of their children. One person said, absolutely disgusting. I had a full-time job in the summer at 16. Now I'm 27. Just more ways for the government to overstep and over-control. Not my fault. 
and there's no exception, by the way, to age. Um, or excuse me, for if you have a job or not. So if you're coming from an event or a job, don't matter. No exception to this. I guess you can't work after 10 o'clock or you'll get in trouble. Police, they say, in Buffalo are useless, would never work. One person texted in, all right, you think it would be a good idea to impose a curfew in Buffalo, just like they have in Philadelphia? 716-803-0930 is the number. So text messages continue to come in. One person said, the curfew is based on big brother mindset. The kids are going to meet girls at the movies or see bands. They're young adults, okay? Yeah, I mean, when I was that age, too, I kind of ran around. I wanted to... Where are the girls at? You know, you and the boys are out there and you're like, okay, you know, it's time to find out where the girls are hanging out. But luckily I had a good group of people. It was boys and girls, so we didn't have to do that all that often. But I remember a lot of times just kind of like, okay, we are just going to sit out and talk. Or I remember, let's go to McDonald's, get a double cheeseburger and just sit here and talk while we watch the traffic go by. That's the type of stuff we'd see sometimes. Uh, they should only enforce curfew for Bowerly. One person texted in. See, this is good. Up to no good. No one is up to good after midnight. I think that is the universally understood thing, unless you are actually working. But I would take any job I possibly could when I was that age. If they gave me an opportunity to work through the overnight hours, I would. But luckily, uh, I didn't have to work too late. But sometimes it would go late. You know, 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Maybe sometimes you have to stay late because you're cleaning or waxing the floor or something like that. And you might get out till 10. My parents understood that. But I always worked close to home. So it wasn't a long drive after that. And I loved getting the hours. And it wouldn't mind because a lot of times I would do my homework at work. So I'd be getting paid to do my homework. So it was a good deal all the way around. All right. So that was uh, ABC 6 out of Philadelphia discussing that one. I do think a curfew wouldn't be a bad idea, though be difficult to enforce in today's world. I don't think it's a bad idea overall. Let's take some more of your text messages or calls. Uh, 716-803-0930. I saw this one opinion piece come out. And we only got a couple of minutes here, so we won't spend too much time on this. But they were discussing obesity in America. And I guess a bunch of scientists got together, a bunch of smarty pants, and they said, you know, we really need to get to the bottom of obesity. And this is an opinion piece that was in the New York Times this week. And they said that these researchers got together and they noticed something. They said, um, 1980s. A lot of people started getting chubbier. They started putting on the weight. The waist started getting larger. Obesity rates took off. And it first started with high-income countries. And then the rest of the world, you started to see obesity rates. They say our genes haven't changed. So what's going on? They say that we haven't got more lazy. We haven't got more gluttonous or slothful. And as these scientists look at this, they come to the conclusion that obesity may not have to do with us exercising or not or us eating extra Big Macs or not, per se. They don't look at it as a personal responsibility issue. As in, hey, you skipped the the workout. Uh, you, Richard Simmons' tape hasn't been played forever in your VCR. What's up with that? They decided that the reason why so many people may be getting obese are the toxic substances that are in ultra-processed foods. And those things can carry insecticides, fertilizers, plastics, and additives, argued one biochemist. They also say that there could be other things playing into it, and they say it's more of a disease, and we have to look at obesity as a disease more than anything else. Um, I, you know, don't tend to agree with that. It seems like, for the most part, a lot of people have had success with cutting calories, limiting the things 
they, they take in exercising. That helps practically everyone. There's a very small percentage that don't get any benefit from those sort of things. But from as far as I know, there's still people that exercise, but not as many because our jobs don't require us to stand on our feet all day or do high labor intensive things. So we don't supplement that with any anything extra. Uh, and also, I think we eat so many sugars in our diet. You know, forget about all these ultra processed foods. If you can cut sugars out of your diet, you're probably going to do a lot of good, too. That was an opinion piece from The New York Times that I don't necessarily agree with, but I thought was fascinating. Uh, we could talk about that next hour if you want to. I'm Ryan Recker filling in on WBEN. Don't go anywhere. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.